0: is about uh, and what they define love to be. A group of kids, uh, ages 4 through 8, they were asked to define love, and here are some of their answers. Elaine, age 5, said love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken in the box. The one with the most meat on it. Noel, age 7, says love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and he wears it every day. Chrissy, age six, says love is when you give someone most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. Mark, age six, says love is when mommy sees daddy on the toilet and doesn't think it's gross. And finally, Nika, age six, says if you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend you hate. little serious one there. Know what she's been through, but uh, (laughs) Nika, she's better than all of us. uh, And I think she has an idea of what this sermon is about, what this passage is saying uh, about love that is true and genuine. Well, let's set this all up where we're headed today. Uh, Last week, uh, we turned a corner here in our study of Romans and started chapter 12, and we heard that this is a turning point in the book where we. Really start to see the real nitty gritty ways that the teachings of Romans chapter 1 through 11, all about God's free grace, His justifying work in our lives, our future that's secure, how it changes us day to day. We learn that we're given indicatives, truths about what's been accomplished for us. You and I have a new identity in Christ, we have a hope of uh, hope that's eternal and will never be taken away from us. And all that's good, all that's real, it's great to learn, be encouraged by. I'm sure you've had wonderful discussions in your groups together for it. But what is the point if all that doesn't produce real change in our lives? If it's all just stuck in our minds, if it's just something that sounds nice and we agree with, but if we're truly not walking in them. And so from chapter 12 on, we're given imperatives, how that's all fleshed out, commands for us to obey in light of all that we've received and learned. And friends, let me remind you, as we've been reminded over and over again, Christianity is not just theoretical. It's never just an intellectual endeavor for us to get it right. You know, I have students in our community group ministries, they're always so nervous when the CG leader just says the question, they don't want to get called on because <laughs> they're afraid of saying the wrong answer. But when they say the right answer, it's an accomplishment. It's like, yes, I'm doing well, I'm right. But that's not all it is. It's not. is. It doesn't mean that we've truly arrived. When it comes to growth, ministry, it's all about, as last week's passage taught us, a wholehearted surrender to God, walking in obedience and love before Him and making His message known wherever we go. So the first 8 verses of chapter 12, we learned that in view of all that God's done, by His mercy, we are to offer our lives, our bodies as living sacrifices. We are to place ourselves on the altar, saying, this life is not mine. I belong to God, and I want to walk in a way that's pleasing and acceptable to Him. And one of the ways we learned to do that was to serve the body of Christ with the various gifts that we've received. And here in verse 9 today, Paul takes a turn and brings up a topic that is perhaps the hardest way for us to truly be a living sacrifice, and that is in the area of love. Do you truly love your neighbor in your relationships with others within the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ? This makes perfect sense because everything that we Learn that God has fully accomplished for us, choosing us before the creation of the world, adopting us into his family, forgiving our sins and bringing us to heaven one day in perfection. These are all expressions of God's love for us. And so it makes sense because love is truly at the heart of Christ's work in saving us that the first real practical way that Paul would want us to live that out and to apply it It's to be a living sacrifice by loving our neighbors as well as our enemies. You know, it's so easy to convince ourselves that we're loving people, right? Just one nice thing we do, and we've done our job. The other day at Planet Fitness, I let someone take my parking spot. You know, it was mine. I had my eye on it. But I was like, you know, I'm in a good mood. I'll let this guy take it. And I was like, good job, Dan. You are one loving, nice guy. Other people should learn from you. 30 minutes later, some guy hopped in front of me with the bench press, and I got really upset, you know? Because I'm not as loving and as nice as I thought I was. And we're all like that. Especially when that love is tested, when unlovable people come into view, start pressing us, pushing us, offending us, hurting us. They make it difficult, if not impossible, to obey this passage. That's why we need this passage to instruct us in the ways where it's difficult. And this is where Nika has a point. You know, There's nothing overly remarkable about loving those who love us back. Right? Even dogs do that. But when we're tested, and when we can overcome evil, which is our goal, then we know that Christ's love has won. It's truly, truly prevailed. So before I get into the uh, outline here, ask yourself this question, how are you doing today? Uh, are there, quote unquote, enemies in your life right now that you're having a very, very difficult time showing kindness to? How are you responding? And how is that affecting your walk? How is that affecting your relationship with God? So, three parts to the sermon is very simple. First uh, section of this passage, we see a portrait of love. Secondly, we see this very topic here the difficulties of love, the challenges. And thirdly, we need the power to overcome evil with good. We need a power greater than us to respond in love, uh, to love the way Christ taught us to love, and so we'll talk about that towards the end. So first, from verses 9 through 13, we see that it's a sectioned-off paragraph here. We see a beautiful, descriptive portrait of love described for us here. Walk with me uh, through this passage verse by verse. And the first thing that we see is that love is to be genuine. Love must be sincere. The love that we ought to display in our lives for others is not to be fake. It's not to be hypocritical. It can't be just warm on the outside, just in smiles and greetings while you're despising people on the inside. The inner heart must be selflessly loving so that the outer warmth, the greetings we share on sunday everything we do everything we say is an outflowing an overflow of what christ has deeply produced in your soul your heart it must be genuine you know and something i'm always mindful of especially in my ministry, is that it's not just enough to produce a culture of niceness at church. Yes, I want our church people to be polite, you know, to to not ignore people, to go out of your way, say hi, and greet people, especially who are new. But it needs to be so much more than that. There must be something underneath that makes that uh, that love and those greetings to possess substance and power. Uh, I don't want to just have people know how to put up a good front, which is nothing more than what a commentator calls a veneer of pleasantness that may otherwise cover just a spirit of backbiting gossip and prejudice. And friends, if that's all there really is, we need the gospel to take deeper root. We need to listen more to God. We need to be in his word more. We need our hearts to be made pure by the inner working of the Holy Spirit and the sanctifying work because after a while, it gets difficult, tiring uh, to fake Secondly, moving on here, genuine love must abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, right? Now, we don't often use the word abhor often. Uh, what that means is to hate with disgust. Right? All that is evil. Something, think about something you hate so much that it makes, you, makes your stomach turn. Every time I see snakes, my stomach turns. I hate them. Think about anything that will cause you... Uh, to, to really feel this feeling of disgust. And that spirit, with that spirit, we're called to hate evil and sin. And this is important. What does this have to do with love? Because love is all about the truth. Love is all about loving what God loves. And especially in relationships, to have the heart of God, to possess the heart of God, and to really fight against what's truly, truly evil, and to cling to what is good. And what is that all based on? Put in simpler terms, love is built on truth and honesty, truth that is found in the scriptures. You know, and the reason for this, and what I've found uh, in my life and in the lives of those around me is that when we stray from God's word, uh, when we try to do life, especially in our communities, and we try to reach out, and we do it apart from what the Bible teaches us, isn't it so easy to try to define evil and good on our own terms? In our own minds, we start to base uh, our evaluation of who are good people and evil people based on what we believe, what we imagine to be. And that was actually in our confession prayer today. You know, apart from God's truth, we make up in our own minds the standard of what's truly good and evil. For example, if we don't like somebody, if they rub us the wrong way, if they disagree with our beliefs, if they're not on the same page with us, if they're not the kind of people like we enjoy being around, it can be easy for us when they do the first wrong thing to think they're just evil people. But if they agree with everything we say, you know they're uh, kind to us in return. We like the way they look. They agree with our thoughts. And uh, I think the temptation sometimes can be to overlook any sin or evil uh, that uh, that we might see and start to become accepting of it, and not taking seriously this call uh, in this verse to abhor what is evil and abhor what is evil and to cling to what is good. You know, an example of this uh, is the danger of when a Christian uh, gets romantically involved with an unbeliever. You know? And it happens quite often uh, where you get caught up in it and straying from what God's teachings are. And the lines of what's good and bad and what's right and wrong can easily start to blur. You know? But I'll save that for another sermon uh, for, for you guys. Not just truth, but also Honesty. When we see people in our communities who are clinging to what is bad and despising what the Bible calls good, then we can't just idly sit there and watch them live that way. The truth must drive us to share Christ's love in this way. You know, it's not easy, I I know, uh, uh, to be honest and upfront with people when they're disobeying God, but it's part of my calling. I run a ministry of students who often need to be reminded and taught Uh, not to disobey God, but to walk in His truth. And I thought about why is this so hard? Why is it so hard to confront sin with truth? I think for me, one reason is because it's a hassle, right? Uh, I think it's easier if you could just correct people, rebuke them, and then just walk away. But you can't do that, right? You have to stay there. You have to help them change. You have to follow up. You have to guide them in the right way. And that takes time. That takes energy. That takes love. That's why the truth needs love. They, they, need, they need to go hand in hand. Maybe some of us, uh, we're caught up in what people think of us. We don't want people to be upset at us. I know a lot of parents, they can't stand it when their kids are mad at them, and so it's hard for them to always be so upfront front uh, and, stand, and stand for what the Bible says as truth in their lives. Maybe that's the way we feel about our friends. Uh, maybe we don't like being honest because we're, that means we have to admit, you know, we, we've been hurt. That makes us vulnerable. Or maybe we simply just don't care enough. But genuine love we see here is built on the truth, what the Bible teaches. And we must not be afraid uh, to stand for that truth and build each other up in Christ's love. Why? Let's continue on here. Verse 10, because of what verse 10 describes. Love one another with brotherly affection. Paul's using here family terms to describe the community is and ought to be the love that shared amongst us should be like one that sticks right the love of a family is always there though it can get difficult and complicated you know some of our worst times might be with our family but that's a love that we can look to to always always be there because once someone's your brother or sister they are always your brother and sister and that's the same spirit that should unite and bring the church community together as well. And with that, at the second part of verse 10, he says, because that's true, outdo one another in showing honor. Because you are family, we need to lift each other up. The way you would try to honor yourself and exert yourself, show honor. And it's interesting, he says, outdo one another here. And I think what Paul knows here is that we're naturally competitive people. We're always trying to outdo one another in everything, whatever we feel like we're good at, whether uh, it's our intellect, our talents, our physical appearance, our, our abilities. It's just we, our human nature is not just to be good, but to be better than the person next to us. And that comes up every area of our lives. We have the softball playoffs going on, and I know that's driving me uh, in competition. But Paul sees that and sees our bad habits in that. He says, take that. Uh, tendency, and the one area where you can try to outdo one another is in honoring one another in Jesus Christ. So we look around. We see Christ's love being shared. We see others serving, and what should drive us is to say, wow, this is something that we need to have more. It's not just something I want to see more, but something I want to do. So if my, I see my friend or my fellow community group member rolling up their sleeves getting involved in meeting needs around the church, seeing people who are struggling, and we see that going on. Let me help. Let me do more. Let me outdo my brother and sister. And when we see people wanting to serve in that way, we will truly see a selfless, loving community that's being built up to share active love in this way. Not only that, verse 11 says, Genuine love must not be lazy and weak. It must not be slothful but diligent and fervent, filled with fervor. What that literally means is active, filled with fire, passion. It's expressive. So you can't just say you love your brother and sister and never show it. You can't just say you love your husband and wife or your kids and never do anything to show that that love exists. And he's saying here, even in your community, It's easy to say, I love you, my brother and sister, I care about you. But if it's not done diligently, and if it's not done sincerely, and with fervor inside your heart, then what good is it? So many times in friendships, you can go a long way without doing something nice for your friends or for the people you live with. You You just kind of assume they're there, they'll always be there. People you see day in and day out, the people you wake up next to, the people you work with. And even in your weekly community group meetings, you just assume that there's going to come and they they think you care, but uh, this verse is reminding us that we can't be lazy in that. People are insecure. People need to be reminded all the time that they're part of a a bigger spiritual community where Christ's love is active and tangible. I pray that that is going on in your communities, your families, your homes, uh, wherever you are. If you haven't shown your community that you love them, if you haven't gone out of your way to share that, And haven't been creative about it in a while. Why? Where has your love gone cold? Where have you disconnected from God and His teachings? And how can you be reminded and empowered by this command today? And at the end of verse 11, Paul says to serve. And I think last week's passage uh, touched on that, so I don't need to rehash that teaching. But I'll just point out in verses 12 and 13, we're told how we can serve, both diligently and with fervor. That is to be constant in prayer, which I'll get to in the next point. Um, If you truly love your brothers and sisters, then you can express it by praying for them and to contribute to their needs and to show hospitality. Be hospitable. And friends, uh, Renewal family, I I really believe both in West Philly and here as I come here every so often, I really believe God has blessed us in this area. And I want to thank you all uh, for being great witnesses and sharing Christ's love actively in this way. I uh, even talked to Pastor Luke this week about some of the things that have gone on, you know, uh, amongst our community here. You know, families uh, serving one another in times of need, you know, providing meals, providing child care uh, in various ways. Newcomers being quickly reached, you know, contacted so they can feel right at home. That's a wonderful way uh, for love to be truly, truly genuine. I know some of you have stepped up and served in ways that you've never served before and imagine you would. Serving children when you've never played with a kid in your life, <laughs> you know, stepping up and serving in that way, Sunday committees, you know, the worship team, and all these things, that says a lot about your hearts, uh, placing the needs of the community and the church before your own. Not to mention summer accountability groups, which in my experience, so quickly and easily fizzle out because it's extra time and work. But if you truly value the growth, your own growth, as well as the growth of your brother and sister, you know, and your collective sanctification is very, very important to you, then uh, I know uh, that that will will bear so much fruit in the future. And our community will truly, truly shine the light of Christ. And I truly believe these things should mark the church. Hospitality should be a given. If you're blessed to own a home, it should be a communal place where people meet often. You You need your space, obviously, but uh, people should know what your home smells like. They should know what your bathroom smells like, you know, good or bad. Uh, they should know what your cooking skills are like, good or bad. Because you know, it shows you're trying. Your doors are open. You know? What God has blessed us with, we share. And it's a resource to truly, truly build up the community of Christ. Look again at verses 9 through 13. I don't know if you can circle circle it or underline it, but I believe this is a passage that we should share often. I think CG meetings, when we launch up again, we should share it. Staff meetings, we should share it with each other. Missions teams should share it with each other. Family meetings, share it with each other to be reminded that this is what, this is what we should strive for here. Christ's love isn't supposed to be fake, invisible, inactive, shallow. It's to always and be freely exchanged in word, deed, and service. And in case we forget, verses 9 through 13 reminds us and holds us accountable that if the gospel of grace has gripped us and has gone deep, then we can't just sit on it. So let's pray for each other in this. Let's exhort each other, hold each other accountable, and let's uh, exhort each other uh, to walk in Christ's love in this way. And that leads us to our second point because it's not easy. There There are occasions and circumstances where it becomes very difficult. And the particular challenge that verse 14 turns to now is when we are wrong. When our love is tested because we're mistreated or sinned against. And think about if this has happened to you in your life, whether it happens on small levels repeatedly or something serious has been done against you at some point in your life and that trauma, the pain, is still with you. There's no greater test of the quality and the maturity of our faith and our love when we're confronted with sin, when evil has been done against us. And the charge to us in verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Why does Paul have to say that? Because apart from God's word and his guidance, our flesh naturally pushes us to curse. Don't we? Now, we're talking about a wide range of circumstances here. You know, Persecution, obviously, is one, as Paul is writing this. The specific evil that he's being confronted with is being persecuted for being a minister of the gospel. He's in chains. Uh, his life is being threatened. And that's the evil that's being heaped on him. And the way the witness he's producing is responding to that particular difficulty. But it can come to us in wider forms. You know, um, We can face persecution, obviously, uh, from those outside the church who look down on Christianity. But sadly, we can also be attacked and mistreated by those who are close to us as well, who are of the same family, how many churches go through divisions and conflicts that can become very severe, and that can hurt so much more, but the call is still the same, bless, do not curse, overcome that evil, now how do you react, how do we react when we've been wronged, you know, um, and especially when it's clear that it was done intentionally, First, we might feel pain, uh, rejection, betrayal. I think the older we get, the closer we get to people, the more it hurts. It can be humiliating, especially if it's done out in the open. We can get very, very confused as we wonder, where did that come from? How did I not see that coming and why? And it can fester, turn to anger, resentment. Uh, We can constantly replay those conversations, those words, uh, those those scenes in our minds, and it just causes us to become so discouraged. And a couple of things we can exaggerate, and again, what we prayed earlier, we can exaggerate the evil in other people, just zooming in on their mistakes and assuming that just because they do one little thing, they're evil in every way. Not only that, we can exaggerate our own innocence, right? I know that when someone, I see someone uh, sinning against me or against people I love, one of the first thoughts I tend to think is, I would never do that. I would never do that to you. I've never done that to anybody. And immediately, our minds go towards self-righteousness. That because I'm not capable of doing that, I'm better. And if we seek revenge, we think it's warranted. That this is right. I need to fix things. Now, it's not wrong to desire fairness and justice, as we learn from the Bible. It's part of who we are as human beings, being made in the image of God. Uh, It's built in us to believe that There must be punishment for evil. There must be retribution. Evildoers must pay for their actions. If something is broken, it must be fixed. But where we go wrong is when we seek that fairness and seek to correct things with a mean spirit, uh, with evil in mind, which we may not always be aware of. And why we need, verse 17, to tell us repay no one evil for evil. Verse 19, beloved, never... Under any circumstance, avenge yourself. No matter what they did and why they did it. In verse 21, do not be overcome in any shape or form by evil. It's Paul equating here vengeance with evil. And if we respond that way, then the evil that has been done to us can infect us. And we can make it worse and worse. You know? Think about it. Think about all the conflicts we see in our world today. And even some of the fights we might have been in. If, we, if there's ever revenge, sometimes that act of vengeance is in excess. It's worse than the original offense, right? I can see kids fighting, you know. It's like one kid punches the other kid, and the other kid punches them back, and it goes back and forth. But then where it gets worse is then one of them dares to punch twice. You know? It's like, that's not fair. You only punched once. But then it gets worse. There's kicking and hair pulling, and then that's when war breaks out. And that's a picture of how that works in our hearts. And it never accomplishes anything, right? We get back at people. We might use words uh, to try to put people down. And it feels good in the moment to try to pay people back. But if we're real and honest, uh, the brokenness and malice still remains. And even worse, that person hasn't changed If we return evil for evil, they're not like, oh, my bad, you know, and all of a sudden they're on their faces repenting and changing, you know. That never happens. In fact, they may have gotten worse, uh, adding to the list of things uh, to be upset about, keeping score, and on and on it goes. You know, it's not just in situations like that, but in our world today, why we need to be mindful of this is that we can make enemies pretty much anywhere. neighborhoods, work, school, online, people are always bantering online about anything and everything these days. People who disagree in their beliefs, and it can get pretty, pretty ugly. And Paul says, even if you think you're right, even if you are right, there's no exceptions here. You are to bless and do not curse. Now, what does this look like, especially when... Uh, people don't apologize, when they don't own up to their mistakes. You know? And I think, you know, we, there, there are things that we can read in this passage to, show, to guide us in how not to respond and then how to respond. And I think one thing we see is that we should never, ever run away as the first instinct. Never cut people out of our lives as our first response, you know. And obviously, there are are tensions and conflicts that can get so bad that separation is necessary, but not as the first course of action. That's something we do so often, Verse 17 and 18 says, Repay no one for evil for evil, but give thought. Think about it. To do what is honorable, meaning staying there and acting and doing what's right. And verse 18, if possible, as long as it depends on you. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Meaning stay there. Don't give up on them. And as you have the ability, early on in whatever conflict or tension you're in, do what Christ calls you to do and make peace. Try to make peace. Even if it's difficult and no matter if your actions feel like they're futile. Do what God calls you to do, as far as it depends on you. They need to see Christ in you, in your honorable, loving actions. They need to be there as you seek to build the bridge. Now, I read a Bible study about this, uh, Tim Keller, in a, in a study on Romans uh, 9 through 12. Uh, and at the end of uh, his study, it's this very, very simple practical point, which I really, really stuck with me. Two phrases. Love as you repent, repent as you love. Love as you repent, repent as you love. Uh, And I realize that's so meaningful because it's so easy to separate the loving and the repenting. So love, actively love, meaning forgive, turn the other cheek. I don't need to spell that out for you. I think we all know what we're supposed to do. But repent because... Even if we try to re- respond in love and in kindness, we're so sinful that we can use that as a way of exalting ourselves. Look at me. I'm taking the higher road. I'm better than you. And I'm on a moral high ground here. So I'm, in a sense, having a victory here. And it's still so easy to be bitter and to look down. That's why we need to repent. So as you're forgiving, all right, let's say, your child, your spouse, or your, your roommate, they're upset at you and they spill something in anger. Right? In love, you're like, I'm going to clean this up, girl. Look at me doing this, you know? Uh, hope you cry. Hope this makes you feel bad. No. But as you're responding in kindness, it's, Lord, I repent. Because even as I'm trying to love, I'm not loving in my heart. I'm just as evil, if not more hateful than the hate that's been shown to me. So repent. That's what we need to do. And even as we repent, we can't sit there too long without loving because if we wait too long, it's harder and harder to do. No matter who it is. And remembering that our repentance is not just based on God, I'm just a bad person, but Lord, even in my worst moment, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And that's such a no-brainer Christian answer, right? But try it next time when you're getting upset. When someone's spewing evil at you. Just say, Jesus, you forgave me when I was this bad. And I can show some restraint and self-control and share love. When I have no instinct or desire to love in this moment right now. And then Paul pushes the envelope in verse 20. He says, to the contrary, instead of cursing, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heat burning coals on his head. Feeding your enemy when they're hungry and giving them a drink when they're thirsty means to seek their good, to make their lives better by giving them what they need. So you can literally feed them. Maybe they do need a drink. (laughs) Maybe they need food to calm down. But you can also bless them In other ways, by, as you see this tension going on, what could help the situation? How can I help them change? Let's say someone stole from you uh, to feed an addiction or a bad habit. More than trying to get them caught or scolding them, trying to respond with kindness by finding them help, offering help. Or maybe there's a member of your community and they're being offensive, saying hurtful things. Um, and instead of trying to get them removed or transferred to another group so they can be someone else's problem, sticking with them, uh, reaching out to them in kindness, finding out what's underneath and helping them change. And where people might try to pick fights, you know, and they might be expecting comebacks or retaliation, we catch them off guard by responding in humility in the way Christ will call us. And what this verse promises is that you will heat burning coals on their head. Well, what does that mean? A you know, very strange picture. Someone's hair on fire, you know, roasting uh, marshmallows or something on, on their head. But I think it's just an expression for the pain of humiliation. You know, when you're humiliated, it's painful. But especially when you're humble, when you're acting a certain way, and maybe you an experience when... You, when you were a kid, you talked talk back to your mom or dad, and they didn't yell back. Instead, they did something nice for you. And it's that feeling of, I feel terrible about the way I've been. Seeing the wrong you've done that's been met with blessing. That's where evil loses. That's where evil weakens. And you keep doing that in faith, even if you don't feel like it. The Holy Spirit is at work in you. In your prayers, when we ask God, this is going to get harder and harder to do. So, Lord, keep my heart soft. Keep it teachable and do it in humility. As verse 16 reminds us, uh, never be wise in your own sight. In your eyes, you know, uh, when you're proud, it's all just this narrow view, of just what's good for me, what's oh, it's wise for me. But um, we're reminded to do what is honorable in the sight of all, not just in your own sight. And where it might be appropriate just to lash back, when we're, humili- when we're humble and walking in humility, we remember the wisdom of Proverbs, which says, where you might be tempted to, to fight back in harshness, remember that a soft answer in kindness is what truly turns away wrath. And above all, pray for your enemies. And I think that's a good way to apply uh, verse 14 elsewhere we remember uh, we're called to be constant in prayer how do we bless those who persecute us what's the opposite of cursing it's praying blessing now have you ever tried to pray for someone who you were upset at or someone who wronged you that's a that's a difficult prayer uh, not too long ago i tried praying for someone who had upset me uh and for me you know um, I'm human, uh, I, I sometimes take things the wrong way and personally, and uh, I don't like remaining in my anger, so I try to let it go, and uh, I realize that prayer is really the main way to, for your heart to change, and I remember sitting there saying, Lord, I pray for uh, this brother, I pray for this sister, and there was about a long period of silence, I don't know what to pray for them, Lord, may they trip and they fall on their face, I <laughs> don't may they face some misfortune today, I don't know, but you can't pray that and feel right about it, you can't pray And call them names in in the prayer. I pray for this jerk. Oops, I'm sorry, God. You know, it's like, God, I sit there, I pray for them. And then when those words come out of your heart, um, you put yourself in a position of wanting what's best for them. Even if it's, God, I pray for this person to change. Change for what? Change for the better. Change to follow God's ways better, to be more obedient. And the more you pray that, your heart starts to desire that rather than pain for them or torture for them. And that's ultimately for the best because if they change, then the situation has changed. And ultimately, you change when you pray. God has a way of bringing you to a place of clarity and humility and dependence on Him and admitting that you were, could possibly also be in the wrong and that you need mercy as well. When you pray, it's Less and less about you against them. It's more and more about us all equally needing God's mercy at his feet. And we want to show Christ. And we're so thankful for the mercy that he gives us that we don't want to keep it to ourselves. Uh, We want to show it even to our enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We look to the gospel for help in part three here. How can we possibly overcome evil with good? It's when we look at a good God. When we look at a perfect God. When we see, first of all, in verse 19, that vengeance is his, not ours. We're not judges. We're not ones who can freely administer justice in this world by saying what we need to say and always doing what we need to do to make things right. That's all in God's hands. And one of the best things I've ever heard that helps me when I want to fight back at evil done against me, is that nobody ever will ever, ever get away with anything. We will all one day stand before God and give account for everything we've ever, ever said, done, or felt. And because we believe that's true, that God is the most perfect and righteous judge, and His justice has already been brought to earth in the death of His Son Jesus and His resurrection. One day it will be perfect in our lives and across the world he created. And that should be enough for us as Christians. He brought justice in a way that's perfect. Neither passive nor excessive. He knew that he could not overlook sin. And because Jesus was a sinless God-man who was perfect in every way, his sacrifice was enough. And this is something that I will never, ever understand. How can one death be enough to satisfy God? How can that be enough of a payment for God to accept so that He turns away His wrath away from the wicked that continues to remain in us? But that causes us to humble ourselves. We are not God. We cannot ever understand justice as perfectly as He can. And we'll never, ever know what's in the heart of others and why they are the way they are, and that they need just as much mercy as we do. And Jesus Christ, who had every right to call down legions of angels from heaven and pay back those who were executing him, he didn't. Isaiah 53 prophesied the silent lamb who was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He did not retaliate. And even if he did, we would have understood and we would have accepted it. But he shocked the world by lovingly sacrificing his life. Knowing that the world would not be saved by aggression, by anger that's returned, but by laying down his life, remaining patient under suffering, bearing every ounce of pain for you and me. And when he rose from the grave, verse 21 was accomplished once and for all. Evil has been overcome by good. And when we believe this in faith, we see and experience this, it will help us to do the same. We must believe that God is always in Years ago, I had to really believe this uh, in a situation with my family. You know, my parents, uh, there was a situation at my dad's church that he had been pastoring for uh, a couple of decades, and bad conflict came up where there was a lot of fighting, uh, backstabbing, and a lot of mistreatment that uh, my parents received. And um, a long story, but it was just hard for us to see that happen and not want to seek justice, you know. I don't know how, but... Uh, To fight back in some way, you know, and uh, make things right. But uh, I was often reminded that uh, from my parents on phone, multiple phone calls that God's in control. If there's evil on any side, that will be taken care of by God. We just need to pray. Pray for our enemies. Pray for ourselves. You know, God. He has a way of always setting things right in ways we can't imagine. Uh, And it's so hard to believe in the heat of the moment. And sometimes all we'll be able to do is just sit there and pray. But if we truly believe that God's will is best and his will always be done, then we can go forward in faith and we can pray those prayers in peace. Maybe you're not a Christian here today. Uh, Maybe this is the way you lived your whole life, to Assert yourself and not let people run all over you and do what's best for you. Why be nice when uh, it's so much better, it feels better to return pain for pain, eye for an eye? And maybe you've tried on your own just to be good in your own power, but we know that that never works. Even people who, uh, the nicest people in the world who try to be nice on their own, uh, there's a limit. It's impossible. To be good. So impossible that the only person to do it perfectly was was God. And He did something about it. He obliterated evil forever and ever so that we who were once His enemies have been brought near. And one day, this world full of evil will come to an end and God's justice will forever reign. But in the meantime, we are to flood this earth with the love of God, turn enemies into friends of God. You know, Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War, was known for often crossing the border to mingle in the South with the Confederates. People often wondered, why are you you spending time there? Why are you uh, surrounding yourself with evil? And he responded, Do I not destroy my enemies when I turn them into my friends? And when God sent Christ to reconcile us to him, that's exactly what he did, overcoming evil with good. And that's where our power comes from, the Spirit who indwells us, all those who are his, providing us the strength to rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer. And church, I pray that as we press forward, we can win this battle against evil by being like Christ day by day. May our mainline congregation truly see His kingdom come as people witness, active, diligent, love filled with fervor being shared, as we see forgiveness, kindness, as we see selfless Christians dying to themselves day by day, but following Christ, carrying our cross for His sake, that lives are being won over for the kingdom. And that's what we're ultimately about. So let's take uh, Romans 12, 9 through 21 in our hearts this week. And as difficult as a call as it is, by his grace, by his mercy, and with his indwelling power in us, let us bear fruit unto his glory. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? And uh, I'll give you this opportunity uh, to respond. Uh, only way we can obey difficult teaching is by asking God for help. And why don't you, for a minute now, ask God for help. Why don't you ask God in the ways you feel weak.